0: Welcome to our weekly podcast on the dairy industry, the Dairy Dialogue, and this is number 103, I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we have a packed show again this week with four guests in three interviews. We also have our look at the dairy news headlines from the past week, as well as details on our upcoming webinar on November the 5th, which ironically is Bonfire Night in the UK, although I suspect there won't be a lot of celebrations this year. And it's kind of a dying event now anyway, as Halloween grows each year although probably this year there won't be too many celebrations because COVID-19 is scary enough. A mix of rain and sun here this week, although it's getting noticeably darker at night now, and there are way more traffic jams thanks to all kinds of road work going on. Lockdown doesn't change some things. Before we get started, let me run through who our guests are this week. We talk to Mohamed Saad Qureshi, Senior Scientist, Sustainable Fuels and Circular Economy at the VTT Technical Research Centre of Finland, Anna Ferrell, Vice President of Global Marketing at ADM, Frederick Melbu, Vice President for Marketing, Food and Beverage at Novozymes, and Imad Farhat, Global VP of Taste at Firminish. We also have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. So now to a little more about the webinar, which I probably will mention on every podcast until it happens. You can register at dairyreporter.com on the homepage. It's on the right somewhere, depending on how big your screen is. The subject of the webinar is creating functional ingredients that can be added to a wide range of products. So it's really what new trends can benefit from dairy ingredients and what companies can do to create profit-making innovative products that consumers will buy. The panelists are Dolores O'Riordan, Lead Principal Investigator at Food for Health Ireland, Liz Moscow, Principal of Bread and Circus Limited in the US, and Christy Saitama, Vice President of Global Ingredients Marketing at the US Dairy Export Council. It takes place on November the 5th at 4pm Western Europe, 3pm in the UK and Ireland, 10am Eastern, and I'm sure you can figure out your own time zone from there. It's free, it's an hour long, and we'll be taking questions at the end of the webinar. Our last one was really well attended, so hopefully you will join us for this one as well. It's live, so who knows what will happen. And we'll be socially distanced, because I'm in Scotland, Dolores is in Dublin, Ireland, and the other two guests are in different parts of the US. All right, let's get to this week's news. There's a new botanical complex for cold and flu support, which can be used as an ingredient with dry milk powders. New research by Lund University in Sweden and Tetra Pak shows for future dairy industry scenarios, and we hope to have an interview about that on the podcast soon. Firminich has opened a new pilot plant close to Geneva in Switzerland. The FDA and USDA have signed a Memorandum of Understanding to facilitate dairy exports. A UK ice cream maker has pulled in a £3 million deal with Dubai in the UAE. Fonterra is selling its farms in China and GEA has launched its Smart Packer CX400 DZIP for diverse bag types, which includes grated cheese. Friesland Campina Ingredients introduced its new Biotis Sleepwell product. Denema Scientific, who we featured in last week's podcast about food waste, is to become a public company. A national Canadian dairy cattle traceability programme has been introduced. Maxim Foods published its October global dairy commodity update. And Danone has sold its remaining shares in Yakult. And you can read all of these and more at dairyreporter.com where you can also register for our webinar in November. Did I mention that already? I think I might have. On with the show, and on to our first interview. It's with two people, actually, from two different companies. Because today, Firmenich, the world's largest privately owned perfume and taste company, and Danish biological solution leader, Novozymes, have launched their new, jointly developed natural sugar reduction solution, Taste Gem SWL, with Saphira Lactase. And to tell us more about it, our Frederick Melbu. Vice President for Marketing Food and Beverage at Novozymes. And Imad Farhat, Global VP of Taste at Firminich. And the first person that we will hear from in the interview is Frederick.
1: Essentially, there's a lot of synergies between our companies. Firmenich is an industry leader in taste. Novozymes is world-leading in biological food ingredients, specifically enzymes. We're both uh, consumer-driven companies. We aim to deliver products that satisfy current consumer trends, uh, in this case, sugar reduction. And we're both really innovative companies. So there's a little bit both a synergy on the product side, but also a synergy on the mindset side. We'd like to work with innovation and are good at doing that. So a few years back, uh, we sat down together and started exploring how this synergy of mindset could be brought to life. We quite quickly identified the consumer mega trend around sugar reduction as an area of mutual interest and something we really like to do. Uh, We think we could partner to help dairies provide what consumers are looking for. So they're looking for products that are still tasty, joyful, nutritious, uh, without compromising on taste. And we actually found something where we can support one of the sustainable development goals on improving health and well-being for people of all ages. So sugar reduction play was a good first starting point for us. It's really, really interesting, and we're quite committed to figuring out how to make it happen. It's been a journey where it's probably not as simple as we thought at first, but with the effort we've put in now, we're really pleased with what's come out of it. This is the first example of a synergy between us, and maybe the future holds more
0: what is the new product that you're launching together and what is it designed to specifically address? So, Jim, I'll
2: probably answer this question. The product that we are launching is a product that we refer to as Taste Gem Safira. It builds on the synergy between Taste Gem, which is today the market-leading flavor solution for sugar reduction, with Safira, which is a unique uh, lactase that has unsurpassed performance in uh, dairy products. And we built an integrated solution of, of the two. The solution that brought not only what the benefits of each of the components can do, but actually we came across a unique synergy between the two technologies. So the really the sum of the two took us further than uh, we had even uh, predicted. The solution allows a major reduction in added sugar, up to 50% of sugar reduction, a major reduction of the lactose in a dairy product, all this without the need for any added sweeteners. So we are able now to formulate uh, dairy products that are, have uh, more than 50% reduction in sugar, very, very low level of lactose, no added sweeteners, but they taste fantastic. They taste fantastic in terms of the way they deliver the sweetness and the way they deliver the creaminess, the mouse feel. So we're actually excited about what the product can do because it is delivering superior performance from a synergy of uh, two technologies that could have lived separately, but we decided to put them together in an integrated solution.
0: And how did the development process proceed in terms of what each company brought to the partnership and how you work together? Was it done in different places or how did the collaboration actually work? And, and what are these two products actually made from? Are they natural products? Or?
1: So maybe uh, I start a little bit here. So we've looked at this as a three-step process. Firstly, we developed our respective technologies, Sephira uh, and TasteGem. Then we brought it together, identifying the field of sugar reduction as a really ripe one, started uh, working on a piece of paper on what could this potentially do and and how far could it take us, as as Imad mentioned before, maybe even into the 50% sugar reduction space. So that was sort of figuring out together what could the concept be. Quite a complex one was to put it together at scale. Uh, making sure that we had something that worked in a long range of applications with the right ratio between the products, Uh, making sure that it was repeatable and making sure that the products don't interfere with each other and start precipitating or work in in ways that they're not designed for. When you bring advanced technologies like TasteGem and Sephira together, You need to be quite sharp on how they interact both positively, like more sugar reduction, but also what negative side effects can there be. And we learned quite quickly that it required the deep expertise, both of a taste leader like Firminich and an enzyme expert like Novozymes to get this to work together. Uh, So that was quite a journey and we're super happy to be here today and say we've actually made something that works fully smoothly between the two technologies fully repeatable and with a very nice up to 50% sugar reduction. I
2: just want to add a comment, Jim, in here how the teams worked together. And that's more a qualitative uh, comment because you have two sets of experts in their individual and their own uh, fields, but they know enough about the field of the other party to be able to facilitate the transfer of knowledge across uh, between from the two companies. And a lot of mutual respect, and and the outcome is actually quite exciting because the outcome is not only a taste gem Safira, but actually a set of technical experts on both sides that have now, if you like, uh, friendships and and relationships, and so, you know, the likelihood of them finding new ideas is is, is now increased. So that's really the exciting part. In terms of the what taste gem made of. And and as I I alluded to the fact that taste today from in terms of a sugar reduction, leveraging natural flavors is it's today the market leader. Taste is made of a number of ingredients and these are natural extracts, botanical extracts, but also some natural substances. And Fermanish holds a lot of the knowledge of how you build these together and the IP and we built taste gem products to address a specific task in, in a given application. So they modulate the taste, sweetness, mouthfeel, but they also, inside the taste gem, we, where needed, we build also tools to mask off notes that can become perceived in a food once you reduce sugar. These could be coming from natural ingredients in the food that may have a bitter taste or a sour taste. So a taste jam is a solution that allows uh, sugar reduction uh, using natural ingredients and extracts. What we try to do in this development is to say, okay, how can we take taste jam to the next level, which is what I highlighted in the beginning, which is a 50% sugar reduction. And that's why we needed to Call on the on the support of our uh, partners at Novozymes. Frederick, you might want to explain about Safira also.
1: Yeah, thanks, Imad. Um, so Safira is a lactase enzyme. Lactases have been around for industrially for more than 40 years. Uh, many consumers are familiar with what they are. Lactases essentially break lactose down and as such, lactases can help uh, lactose intolerant people, which is more than 70% of the world population, to actually enjoy dairy products without gut problems. What's unique about Safira is that it works much more robustly. Before I go there, maybe I should explain just a little bit about what a lactase does. So essentially, it breaks down lactose. Lactose is also known as milk sugar. So it's the sweet part of milk. The problem with lactose is that it has quite a lot of caloric value, but it doesn't taste sweet. Uh, so what happens with the milk sugar uh, lactose is that the lactase break that down into two component, galactose and glucose, where you get uh, the same caloric value, but uh, a much better sweetness. Uh, so you get something where by adding a lactase, remove the lactose and you get a product that's naturally sweeter. This has been done industrially for more than 40 years, but the first lactases that came out were they were quite expensive. They weren't really pure, so you got a lot of side activities. You could get a little bit of a cardboardy taste in your milk or your uh, dairy product. And finally, they they were quite narrow in the range that they work. So a lot of them, all of them would not work at low pH. So it wouldn't work in yogurt. Our scientists have been trying to solve this problem for many years and, and some 15 years ago, scientists first time found a lactase from the bifidobacterium, which is actually one of the good bacteria most people have in our guts. The good thing about getting a lactase that works in the gut is that that's a low pH environment. And we were five years ago able to actually take that lactase from the bifidobacterium, upscale that industrially and produce it uh, and launch it under the Sephiron name. So now you have a lactase that's very pure, it's cost-effective, and it works at low pH. So it works in a much wider range of dairy products than just milk, which has been where it had been originally applied. So it has two benefits. It both gets you the lactose reduction and it gets you the sugar reduction or it enables sugar reduction.
0: You mentioned some of the benefits of Safira there, but in terms of the new product that you're launching jointly, What are the benefits of that compared with existing sugar reduction ingredients for both the consumer and for manufacturers that will be using this in their products?
1: I think we met touched upon a little bit before. Respectively, we have good solutions that provide some sugar reduction. When we put our technologies together and match them up in the right way, as we've explained, then you get something that's unsurpassed. You get up to 50% sugar reduction with, without compromising on taste, texture, and nutritious values, which is quite unique. And, and we believe it's the first time ever someone that we're able to offer something with such a high sugar reduction to dairies.
0: And in terms of the finished products that it will be used in? Essentially,
1: TasteGem works in a long range of products. Lactases only work where you have lactose present, so that's dairy products. That means that our joint product here can be used in drinkable yogurt, spoonable yogurt, flavored milks, anything that comes from milk uh, and has lactose in it, where we can turn the milk sugar into actual sugar.
2: Jim, I think to add to what Frederick said, or just probably (laughs) repeat because he was very complete, The taste gem uh, with Safira, this product that we are launching today, there is no equivalent today in the market in terms of the magnitude of sugar reduction, the combined benefit of sugar reduction and lactose reduction, and very, very importantly, the actual taste performance. The products, this is one of this situation where you are making a reduced sugar product, reduced lactose product, that not only tastes as good as the full uh, sugar, it actually can surpass it in terms of you have a a better sweetness perception, better creaminess in the mouth. So really we are able to create with this product uh, dairy foods that are healthier, but without any compromise on the eating experience and all without adding any sweetener because the trend of sugar reduction we all know how important it is, but consumers are selective and in some cases they don't want to see added ingredients, added sweeteners to their food. And that could be because of their own preference, probably the age group of the consumer that are consuming this product. And that's where Taste Gem with Sephira come, taking you all the way in terms of the sugar and the lactose uh, reduction, but in a completely different uh, way.
0: And I guess there's also the added advantage that in some countries, governments are starting to impose restrictions on certain kinds of products in terms of sugar.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, today, Fermanish is very, very active in the area of sugar reduction. Actually, food companies and many food companies started policing the sugar content that they use much earlier than even before government regulation came in place. But Often the barrier has been is how can I take sugar and still make a product that consumers want to consume? And that's been always the dilemma and we're trying slowly, slowly with new innovations to say there are spaces where there is no need for compromise and um, consumers will buy this sugar reduced product because it just tastes as good as the original and in some cases better. And so sugar reduction is becoming today for food companies uh, is a must. It is, there is nobody who is formulating products now the way they were formulated two or three or four years ago.
1: I think, Jim, it's a very relevant question you asked. When we developed this product, we've been testing it with potential customers. So we have customers saying it's a good fit for our kids' range where high-intensity sweeteners are not desired. They really don't want to put high-intensity sweeteners or too much caloric values into kids' products. We can actually help avoid high-intensity sweeteners and still get a yogurt that kids like to eat that's not sour it still is creamy, it still tastes sweet, but you're not adding uh, artificial sweetness, you're not adding too many calories. And the other type of uh, feedback we got from customers, we essentially had a customer who said to us, this is the best demo for sugar reduction I've ever tasted. A lot of customers said that this is actually a sugar reduced product, but it tastes as good, if not better, than the existing product where you actually you get even more creaminess due to the way that Saphira and Tastium works in the solution so we do think that it's really a combination of products that can talk to some very important consumer demands
0: and so we move on to Finland where it's getting even darker at night than it is in Scotland especially in Nuogam in Finland, the most northerly village in the European Union, which amazingly is closer to Canada than it is to Greece. Anyway, enough of the weird geography. Finland is home of the research institute VTT, which is about to embark on a project on the recyclability of polystyrene. To tell us more about it is the project leader, Mohammed Saad Qureshi, senior scientist, sustainable fuels and circular economy, at the VTT Technical Research Centre of Finland. So I wonder if you could give me a little bit of background on VTT, what it is and what it does.
3: Okay, so basically VTT is a visionary research development organization with quite diverse fields of research themes. And these research themes are basically what we call the lighthouses that directs more or less the R&D activities at VTT. These lighthouses, for example, are climate action, resource efficiency, good life, industrial renewal and safety and security. And within these uh, climate actions, there are several research areas that we are working on. For example, now if I talk about a little bit of numbers, uh, VTT has a revenue of about 245 million euros and a significant amount comes from our project works abroad. Almost 89 million euros comes from government grant. We have in VTT more than 2,100 employees it's quite a bit of international in a sense that 47% of our turnover is basically generated from international projects.
0: Do you just have the one facility or do you have more, more than one?
3: We have quite many facilities actually. The VTT is spread o- over a few locations in Finland. The biggest one being in Espo, but then also in Tampere, and Uvaskala and Oulu.
0: The press release that came out was about polystyrene and obviously polystyrene is used in the dairy industry. Could you tell me what the issues are with polystyrene use and the recycling of it?
3: Yeah, so basically polystyrene is uh, is actually a wonderful material. It's uh, fantastic in, in terms of its properties that it has given to many, many applications from packaging industry, food applications to, for example, insulation boards and uh, making foamy materials for your packaging in, for example, in electronic products, it comes as a as a, as a packaging medium. So it has a lot of benefits in, in a way. But when it comes to recycling, the problem associated with polystyrene is it's that the weight of the polystyrene compared to its volume is quite low. So in a way, it's quite bulky in nature, which makes the transportation of this type of material for recycling very complex and very expensive. What happens to it is that it's not uh, actually collected for recycling but it's just taken out as a means for uh, let's say incineration. So polystyrene is a good material for recycling but unfortunately because of these properties um, it is not recycled today as much as it should be.
0: And so how did the project for recycling polystyrene come about?
3: Yeah, so with the MOPO project, we aim at uh, trying to investigate different recycling routes for polystyrene. Basically, what we want to develop is is like a complete ecosystem in which uh, polystyrene is uh, separately and efficiently collected and then recycled according to the nature of the feedstock. By feedstock, I mean the polystyrene that is collected uh, in terms of where it is collected from for example if the polystyrene is collected from uh, construction demolition site then it has certain properties and uh, for example if, if if the polystyrene is collected from uh, municipal solid waste segregated into Uh, separate polystyrene fractions, then it it, it has different properties. So as I said, that polystyrene is uh, used in various applications, in packaging and insulations. That means that it, it is ending up at different locations. And then what we want to do in this project is try to basically analyze where are the most relevant quantities and qualities of polystyrene are present um, in Finland and also in selected European countries then we want to use that material in this project for testing through different uh, technologies recycling technologies actually so uh, basically we want to characterize the polystyrene waste into broadly two categories clean polystyrene waste and then the one we are calling now contaminated polystyrene waste so polystyrene should be fairly easy to mechanically recycle if it is uh, consistent quality, homogeneous and clean. This is what we want to do in the MOBO project to utilize that clean polystyrene to go through mechanical recycling and going back to polystyrene in just one step then. But the, if the polystyrene is contaminated, for example, it has uh, impurities like flame retardants coming from, for example, uh, EPS, expanded polystyrenes, which can contain, for example, flame retardants. Then we want to take this type of material to chemical recycling technique. And this is what we are calling now pyrolysis technique. In this technique, what we want to do is uh, chemically recycle the polystyrene back into its building block, which is, which is styrene. And then if we can get the, the styrene from the polystyrene waste, Then the styrene can be purified and can be used for uh, remanufacture of polystyrene or then even to other chemicals, for example, latex products or even other chemicals. So this is how we want to basically close the loop for the polystyrene waste by trying different alternatives of uh, recycling technologies.
0: Is this something that will be able to be done at scale? Are you doing this on a small scale and then you'll be able to scale it up afterwards?
3: This project is basically, it's a testing phase for us. So this is going to be a research project. The scale of the trials will be small, but in a way it will reveal what kind of feedstocks can be treated in which recycling uh, technology. This will give us an idea of uh, how different feedstocks work, and then we will try to make uh, assumptions or uh, calculation based on what we have done experimentally in this project, and try to scale it up in other bigger projects. And you have quite a
0: lot of partners involved in this. Are they going to be involved purely from the financial
3: side of things, or will they be involved in the research as well? They're going to be also involved uh, research-wise. So several partners are basically contributing in the project by giving the information that they that they have or they are going to collect during the during the research project and. Uh, for example, some re- recyclers that are included in the, in the project will do a pilot collection trials or let's say they will do a piloting of the collection schemes for separate polystyrene collection. And that will tell us how consumers react to the collection of different types of polystyrene and how, how does that work but this is just one example of one partner doing something but for example there are partners in in the project who are going to use our styrene that we will isolate from the polystyrene waste and and use that styrene to make uh, new products and just test how the recycled uh, monomer is going to behave for the manufacture of new materials
0: because I guess it's, all, it's one thing to be able to recycle it, but then the actual product that you come out with at the end has to have the same properties in terms of doing what it's supposed to do.
3: Yes, this is what we are going to investigate in the project, like the, the feasibility of going from polystyrene waste back to the product that is acceptable to a level where new products are made.
0: And I suppose it also has to be financially viable as well.
3: Actually, yes. So uh, beside uh, the experimental work, the other aspects of the projects that we are trying to investigate in the project are trying to find the business potential of the whole concept and then also trying to investigate the life cycle analysis of the whole concept that we are proposing. So how does separate collection and going through different routes, how does that actually work in terms of emissions and everything?
0: And I guess you'll also need to get consumer buy-in on this as well. How are you going to communicate with the end consumer?
3: Well, as I said, that for example, this one piloting of collection of polystyrene is one thing which is going to facilitate us in order to inform the public about what we are doing, and involve the public in getting the, the polystyrene from their uh, houses into into the boxes that we are going to be using for collection of the polystyrene waste so this is one way of doing it but the other way is that we we want to publicize the need for recycling especially for polystyrene plastic because polystyrene is one of those plastics which can which has very good recyclability i mean despite the fact that uh, it's not collected but if you can collect it and if you can recycle it it has a very good recyclability
0: and i guess this is a two-year project what happens at the end of the project
3: but by the end of it, we will be able to, as I said, we'll be able to, you know, know what kind of polystyrene waste are uh, are available. For example, in Finland and then in selected European countries, That is one one big information that we will collect during the project. But then also physically testing the different materials and trying to figure out the feasibility to to recycle them through different recycling techniques. And at the end of the day, we are we are aware of the business potential and the assessment of the life cycle analysis.
0: Now it's over to ADM to discover more about trends. ADM says it has identified six emerging behavioral changes that will power innovation and growth in the months ahead. To tell us about them is Anna Farrell, Vice President of Global Marketing at ADM. If you could just sort of run through some of the findings from the outside voice mm-hmm. research and what you what you found and what you did.
4: Yes. Just as background, we at ADM have really stepped up our market and consumer insights work. We've been doing a lot of primary consumer studies. Obviously, with COVID-19, we've been really keeping a pulse on how consumer concerns and, and motivations that are you know, driving these behavioral shifts are evolving. And also we have established a global trends um, framework with global transporters in all kinds of regions. And so we are gonna be releasing our global trends, but just to give you uh, a sense for how much we've been out and about behind, you know, what we call a DM outside voice. The key learnings from this latest piece of work six areas of behavioral shifts that are really posing new opportunities to the industry. One of them, which is really top of mind, is obviously this notion of finding that holistic balance for self-care, not only on the physical side, but also thinking about emotional well-being, nutrition as a way to drive intervention, to lifestyles as a way to promote health. So consumers are becoming much more purposeful and conscious, right? Especially in a year like this of being more holistic about how they think about health. So we see the rise of anxiety, stress, difficulty, sleeping. These are some of the things that have been coming up in the midst of so much ambiguity and uncertainty as we've all faced this year. We've seen also the return of permissible indulgences because obviously comfort foods and nostalgic foods have been a good part of how people have been coping with these heightened levels of anxiety and stress. And so we see more of a holistic approach to finding that balance. And of course, um, you know, immunity has been rising to the top when you do research about what are some of the things you think you need to work on. Consumers are really finding that keeping healthy, ensuring that your body is at its best when it comes to health optimization, to be able to fight diseases, to protect yourself. So immunity has been really an elevated top of mind area for most people. Speaking a little bit about how we are leveraging all of these things, we are fortunately very well equipped as a company with all the close to 20 acquisitions we made in the last five or six years. Because we have such a diverse portfolio that we can help companies incorporate botanicals, botanical extracts, the so-called adaptogens, which are natural ingredients that do signal health benefits. And when combined with plant proteins and probiotics, prebiotics, we are really able to drive some health-forward solutions with our customers. So that's a big area. Another one is this notion that nutrition is becoming more and more personal and so there's been a heightened understanding about the idea of personalized nutrition as a way to optimize your physical and emotional well-being so we are going to likely see you know the rise of technology as a way to further customize tailored solutions that can even get to precision nutrition so imagine the use of blood biomarkers dna and other indicators as individual data points that can help drive very personalized precision nutrition solutions. 31% of consumers are already purchasing items that are more tailored to health and nutrition. And this is coming from a global research where we see a lot of opportunity for developers to really take personalization to the next level as they're mapping those most common need states that are coming. Another big one is this heightened awareness and trial of plant-based foods or what is actually becoming the rise of plant nutrition. 57% of consumers believe that plant-based alternatives to proteins are healthier for them. There's also a sense that these are safer alternatives and a lot of consumers do perceive that plant nutrition is going to be an increasing part of their diets. There's tremendous amount of activity right now, not only in the more traditional meat alternative spaces, but I think we're going to see a lot of excitement coming from different formats, coming from different eating occasions as we think about poppable snacks that could be plant-based in fresh forms, in frozen formats and things like that. This is going to be a segment of growth and We've been pioneering a lot of that for over 75 years with soy. Now we've got a much expanded pea protein portfolio. We've got ancient seeds and grains and pulses, all kinds of wholesome ingredients that are going to permeate this space a lot more based on a lot of investment and development and functionality of these other proteins. So I think we're going to see a lot of plant-on-plant plants, as well as the idea of Plant Protein Plus with the addition of health forward ingredients from the simplest of of them, say vitamins to fiber, all the way to probiotics and, and different kinds of strains that can really drive health claims and things like that. Another exciting area is obviously microbiome and how consumers are becoming much more educated about the connection between our microbiome and immunity function, metabolic health, which is gonna drive a new perspective on weight management for sure, as well as the overall holistic health benefits that come from leveraging nutrition as a way to promote health. So the microbiome as a a root of wellness, if you will, is going to become an area of a lot of innovation. We see that 51% of consumers today are declaring that they're concerned about the fact that they've been much less active with all the sheltering in place that we've experienced this year. And so I think we're going to see weight management really become a much more top of mind area where consumers are going to be very purposeful about the decisions and the choices that they're making through everyday nutrition. So we have clinical trials and a lot of research work in metabolic health through the use of probiotic strains as a combination of, that functional aspect of foods that we can bring with all of the wholesome nutrition that can come from foods that are as closest to their natural state coming from the land as possible. So that's another exciting space. Gut health is another big one related to microbiome as well, but gut health, digestive health, these are all correlated areas. In the United States particularly, we see You know gluten-free becoming a huge area of growth probably more so than any other market but i think uh, digestive health connected with immune uh, function and system is going to be an area where we're going to see a lot of nutrition science driving innovation opportunities for beverages and foods and so we're actually having a lot of those conversations with our customers already
0: you mentioned the pandemic a couple of times there. Have these trends been accelerated by the pandemic at all?
4: Definitely. I can tell you a couple of areas that I think were the the most resonating. We've had in different parts of the world some uh, interruption of of supply of animal protein driven by COVID-19 by plants having to rotate their employees, or eventually even having to shut down for a few days. So interestingly, this actually opened up a really interesting opportunity for people to try plant-based alternatives. And so we're seeing tremendous mobilization by consumers in the discovery of these alternatives and the desire to continue to integrate these alternatives into their routine. So in the United States, for example, 18% 18% of the consumption of these alternatives came from brand new consumers that have been experimenting. And this was just in the month of April. So imagine since then. But even more interesting is the fact that 92% of consumers have declared that they're going to continue to include these options in their diets. So I think flexitarianism going mainstream has absolutely been impacted and influenced by COVID-19. But the other big one is this notion of um, really making more purposeful choices related to doing your part to stay healthy in the future. 77% of consumers have uh, told us that good nutrition is, to them, paramount in overall wellness, and they're going to be making those decisions, having health and wellness in mind. So I definitely feel like we're going to see a rise in probiotics and the presence of probiotics in in different foods and beverages. We're going to see consumers looking for, you know, better balancing their choices without compromising, because the other interesting learning is that we're not going to see very likely, you know, those um, restrictive diets when people were restricting themselves too much. I think that COVID-19 has also brought a lot of reflections right we've all spent a lot more time with our families at home we've all been doing a lot more cooking at home and so i think there's an appreciation for sharing those moments and for being more much more balanced and yes permissible indulgences are totally part of the show (laughs) they are part of our everyday. but i think with purpose and i think that's where we're going to see some interesting areas of innovation in all categories right not just um ready meals or prepared foods, but I think we're gonna see that, and it's already happening in snacking, a lot of dairy alternatives and dairy innovations that are gonna come. I think we're gonna see a lot of interesting new products coming because most of our customers and we observe manufacturers have been very concerned about the continuity of supply and making sure that food safety has been a priority more so than ever. So I feel like since about May, we have seen a surge in new innovation briefs coming from customers, not only the big CPG companies but also startup companies, the mid-sized companies as well. Everybody's looking to advance their innovation. So I think 2021 is going to be one of those very exciting years of new ideas, new product forms and and a lot of exciting options for consumers, especially because the demand in retail has been so elevated with um, the restaurants being closed and food service experimenting with a super sharp decline in volumes. So the retail environment is very active right now, not only on the branded side, but also on the store brands and and the so-called private label side of the industry as well.
0: When it comes to some of these trends, the ones that you mentioned, like gut health and immunity, do you think that consumers are already clued up about these things?
4: You know, I think it's a little bit of everything, and I'll, I'll break it down for you. Immunity was the top trend in Google search, globally speaking, in the month of April. Everybody was looking up immunity and learning about what combinations of foods or what nutritional aspects of, you know, things that you can bring to your day-to-day can you start to incorporate. So there was a lot of proactive education that has taken place particularly in the last uh, three months or so but i would also say that we had already been seeing a movement with the uh, millennials and, and younger generation consumers when it comes to looking for more naturality wholesomeness definitely incorporating more of a flexitarian lifestyle and this has been happening globally i would say the more progressive consumers are the ones that are actually paving the way They're doing a lot of education through social channels. So there's definitely a lot of that, you know, multiplication of experiences and new things that people have been trying. And of course the brands do have a big responsibility to also drive that. And so in markets where you see more prevalent presence of consumer claims on packaging, we're starting to see a lot more of that education coming through in the form of new product launches, as well as tastings inside of the stores. Uh, Not so much right now, but we had seen some of that driving the education as well. The advance of technology, and I failed to to say this, but the role of technology this year has been absolutely mind-blowing because not only has it really made for education to become a ubiquitous, much more agile process, but also I feel that With technology, we've all been able to, you know, order food from home, be able to leverage takeout or, you know, resolve for a lot of our needs without having to leave the house, given that we've all been so sheltered this year. Online shopping, of course, has been at its highest peak. And in the United States, it was just interesting to see that the highest growth in online shopping actually came from baby boomers. That obviously have been very afraid of being out and about, given that they fall under the risk group. But it's interesting to see how technology has played a role in the last few months.
0: One of the behavioral changes that you mentioned was the one on weight management. Mm -hmm. Um, I I think over the last, or at least since I've been alive, diets have been something that people have gone on To various degrees of success. In terms of weight management, are you seeing that there are now better ways for people to be successful? Yes, I
4: think that there are two things happening there. And it's interesting, we are actively talking to companies that have been, you know, at the forefront of helping people with weight management. I would say the first enabler is that there are so many more options available now of health forward foods that bring the nutrition that we need without necessarily compromising on the deliciousness of taste and texture experiences you see that in snacking you see it in some of the frozen food options that frozen is back it's been so interesting to observe you know how much frozen foods and more convenient options are now Uh, so important with everybody spending so much more time at home. So we are seeing a lot more options being made available to consumers in that spectrum of taste and texture and really delicious options coming forward with the health profiles that people are looking for. But I would also say that there's been also more of an effort in manufacturers to really bring indulgences that, are really good for you. So look at what's happened with like popcorn. In the last few years, popcorn has taken so many different facets in terms of flavors and different kinds of ways in which you can indulge while still not having to compromise on on something that is typically the kind of snack that can come through at any time of the day, right? Same thing with chocolate. You see a range of innovations in chocolate today that can give you a spectrum of indulgence, but also calling up on the aspects of chocolate that are really good for you. So I think we're going to continue to see the um, fusion of fruit granules and how different types of foods and categories are kind of coming together to drive new experiences and to bring a health forward approach to indulgences as well we are seeing a lot of that in the world of baking and how baking has become a category of much more consumption given that we're all much more at home so we've been having a lot of conversations about you know how to drive nutrition forward baking mixes and blends that can give that wholesomeness and the different textures and flavors in bread which is definitely an area where consumers are going to be gravitating towards. So even though the reduction of carbohydrate intake has been something that we've observed, I think that the industry is moving itself to bring much more variety in ways in which people can actually enjoy those types
0: of products without compromise. These six changes, six behavioral changes, did you find through your studies and your research that consumers are one or two of these are important to them or are they all important to a lot of people or how does that dynamic work between those six changes?
4: You know, they're all somewhat intertwined, right? Because it really speaks to a mindset of being much more proactive and starting to think about optimization. Sometimes optimization comes especially for more progressive consumers in the form of how can I really optimize to be at my very best and to ensure that I am better equipping my body and and myself to deal with all the uncertainty. So those consumers are going to be much more nutrition oriented than others. But in some aspects, I think optimization also comes with how do I better manage for products that I can't afford, and how do I make my compromises, still looking to have a health-forward lifestyle. So I think we're going to see all these different areas of behavioral shifts intertwined. Obviously, things like microbiome solutions, probiotics, they're going to see greater adoption coming from the more progressive consumers before we see it going mainstream. But plant alternatives to proteins are actually becoming quite mainstream in the right consumer groups, right? The younger, more millennial-driven groups in a lot of the more mature markets, particularly in Europe and North America as well.
0: What solutions do you have for companies that are looking to, or what assistance do you have for a company that's looking to tap into any of these particular behavioral changes?
4: Well, at ADM, we've been um, growing and diversifying our capabilities so quickly, Jim. We made about close to 20 acquisitions just in the last six years, with the most recent of them six months ago. And so we've um, acquired, you know, capabilities in the probiotic space, in the um, botanicals, botanical extracts. We've got the omega-3s and the DHA oils in our health and wellness portfolio. We continue to expand our plant proteins, and we have a lot more coming in the next two to three years. So I see that when you put together colors from nature, flavors from nature, culinary capabilities that we now have, we are able to pretty much develop any food or beverage today for any customer. With a lot of the startups that we work with, we're actually their R&D arm and we develop their pipeline of innovation. And in many instances, we are actually connected to manufacturing partners as well in order to bring those new product innovations to life for them. And the same thing goes for a lot of the um, retail chain companies and brands that we work with. So from a CPG to retail branded partners to startups, we are very active today and we are becoming more and more global because a lot of these acquisitions we've made are not necessarily in just a single market. So, for example, Yerba Latina which has just added over 200 botanicals and botanical extracts into our portfolio with this recent acquisition, is a company based in Brazil, whereas the probiotics hub and the nutrition science and a lot of the clinical trials and more of the science activity around biotics is actually based in Europe, whereas wholesome ingredients and more of the plant-forward proteins that we've been expanding are in diverse markets, with North America being... Uh, where we have more of those uh, diverse uh, ingredients. So I think we are also becoming more and more of a global player. And so the aspirations we have as a company to become a a nutrition leader are becoming reality more and more every day. I believe uh, ADM is one of the most capable companies today because the portfolio we have is pretty unmatched. And as you can imagine, Every acquisition has brought incredible talent into our company. So we have a huge network of um, food scientists, ingredient science researchers, as well as product developers and formulators. And there's tremendous exchange in this network.
0: And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from Stone X. This week, we continue to see uh, skim
5: milk powder get a little bit stronger and butter turn around and also uh, rally a little bit in price. Butter seems to continue to get support whenever we get down to these levels of around 3300, 3350 level. We saw quarter four butter up by about 40 euros on the week to 3385 level. We saw quarter one butter was up around 100, 110 euros Ton to the 33.50 level. Quarter two 2021 was up at uh, around the 33.75 level, which was up around 75 euros on the week. And also then uh, quarter three trading up around 40 euros on the week at 34.25 level. Skimmel powder increase in prices were, were much less, but it continues to remain relatively firm. Uh, we saw quarter four trading around the 22.30 level, which is up maybe just about a tenner on the week. Quarter one trading up around a 10 around the week as well, around the 22, 60 level. Quarter two of 2021 was trading up around 15 euros on the week to twenty two eighty five level. And quarter three was around the same level of 2300 as last week. Huey was off a little bit, all right, uh, trading around the 720 level in
0: quarter one. Thanks, Liam. We'll catch up with you again next week. StoneX, formerly INTLFC Stone, provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and MA advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that does it for another Dairy Dialogue. On the show next week, I will no doubt remind you about the webinar on November the 5th, and we have one interview already done, and eight more scheduled, so we should be okay for the next couple of weeks at least. And I'm sure there will be lots more happening over the next few weeks too, in spite of the different kinds of lockdown we're all encountering around the world. Much as I didn't like the full lockdown, at least we knew what was going on. Now it's all a little bit confusing. I'm being invited to a few more events and to some facilities, so how that will work I have no idea, but at least it's nice to be asked to go to some places again. All I know is that if this weekend is fine, I'll be walking somewhere. If it's not fine, I'll be watching spectatorless sport instead and maybe starting on the online Christmas shopping, which will probably have to be done even earlier than usual this year. It's been a strange year, especially considering the first two months were pretty much normal. Anyway, time to start on tomorrow's news and sign off, so wherever you are in the world, stay safe, take care, have a great week, and as always, thanks for listening.